This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. We traded hearts, waited on where the trade winds play. <laughs> trade winds. Yeah, depending on the day, uh, the trade winds are blowing. <laughs> it could be in opposite directions. Trade, 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 more trade today. Uh, the USMCA trade deal seems to be moving forward and toward getting congressional approval. And then there's some developments on the U.S.-China trade front as well. Let's get into it and get the latest with Sarah McGregor, U.S. Senior Trade Editor at Bloomberg News. She's on the phone in Los Angeles. Also back with us, Stefan Selig. He's Managing Partner at Bridge Park Advisors, former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade at the U.S. Department of Commerce. That was during the Obama administration. Uh, he's on the phone from New Jersey. Great to have you both here. Sarah, kick it off for us. What's the latest in terms of USMCA and also US-China? Absolutely. So this sort of good news day for the USMCA, it looks like they have a deal. They've got the Democrats on board. They've got Mexico on board. Uh, it looks like we're, we're going to be able to get this NAFTA 2.0 passed through the US Congress, which is was really just sort of the final hurdle to try and try and get this deal become an actual deal. Um, you know, so, so in that regard, it's a really good news day. But I think what's sort of the bigger story that, that we're missing as we're sort of um, focused right now in the USMCA, of course, are these China tariffs that are coming up on Sunday, $160 billion worth of goods, uh, is 15% tariff that's due to happen. And the big question is, will, will they or won't they? Will the administration put them in place or not? China's hearing uh, from some sources there that they they aren't under the impression that the U.S. will move forward, but it's Donald Trump, and you never know. Right. You certainly never know. That is true. <laughs> Stefan Zilli, come on in here, managing partner of Bridge Park Advisors. You worked in the Commerce Department. You know how these things go. What has surprised you the most as we've moved toward the final stages of this negotiation for USMCA? Um, well, look, I think uh, the USMCA is just a revised um, agreement that adopted many of the provisions that were previously included in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP, which I helped negotiate. So I'm not surprised we got to the finish line. I'm glad that there was a political accommodation, uh, but I don't think um, uh, that should come as much of a shock. I do think there are more surprises coming out of our conversations with China, and surprise one has been how long it has been to get to this phase one deal, which was uh, announced and agreed in mid-October. Those talks have continued to drag on, and a deal there uh, continues to be elusive. So, Stefan, what does that mean? Because I think some of us, or we've been hearing with various guests that, you know, trade is complicated and, you know, this is, you know, a difficult round of negotiations. Is that the case that it does take a long time? Or how do you see it as somebody who's been on the inside and understand how and understands how this process works? Well, part of it, um, Carol, is just logistical, right? And so these two things are tied together. So the United States Trade Representative was obviously distracted for the last couple of weeks um, on trying to get USMCA done. So you can imagine how, how his attention and their attention was turned away from China. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's less of the big picture point, which is um, 
there is it is a it is a very unusual um, circumstance where part of these phase one uh, um, part of the phase one agreement is that the United States is asking China to make very substantial agricultural purchases around soybeans and sorghum, for example. Whereas in previous administrations, all of our efforts have been to have China have their economy be much more driven by market forces and less by government control. But in this particular case, we are now asking the Chinese to actually have the government, um, uh, the government um, uh, agree to very substantial purchases going forward. So it, it's, it is inconsistent um, internally and certainly very different than what previous administrations um, uh, have tried to accomplish. And so, Stefan, what happens next in your estimation? Let's assume sort of phase one gets across the finish line. Is phase one sort of, is that it for a while? Well, it's certainly, Jason, the easiest to accomplish because the phase two or three items really get to um, state subsidies of businesses and the fundamental structure of the Chinese economy, which are going to be much harder um, for um, uh, the Chinese government to agree to politically. But I think the first question is, are we going to get to a phase one agreement by Sunday when these next series of tariffs are scheduled to, to come into place? And if so, uh, essentially all goods being um, uh, imported from China will now be under tariff. That's everything from toys to clothing to smartphones, with a lot of those tar- tariffs now hitting the U.S. consumer and as you guys have talked about on your show, the consumer has been the backbone of the U.S. economic, the U.S. economy. Right. Our economy remains robust, and the bull market has continued to run. And so, I think there's real concern about if those tariffs go into place, doing something that might derail that. So, I could imagine the can being kicked down the road again on the 15th. And as you as, as you have seen over the last um, week or so. Um, some of the some of the comments coming out of the White House have been that there are quote unquote no right. arbitrary deadlines that, that have been set, and as a result, this fifteen day fifteen uh, date um, may come and go. All right, going to have to leave it there. Um, Stefan, thank you so much. Stefan Selig, he's managing partner at Bridge Park Advisors, uh, on the phone from New Jersey, former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade at the Department of Commerce, and then of course our Sarah McGregor, U.S. Senior Trade Editor, Bloomberg News, on the phone from L.A. All right, so let's talk a little bit. I'm going to give it away about Europe. You teased it. That's fine. Give me it away. Now Are we you can okay do, with that? Yeah, you we can, can do, do it that? now. Yeah. All right. You have the my big permission. Reveal? Yes. Thank you. Dun, I da, da, appreciate da. that. Uh, David Marcus is back with us. He's the co-founder and chief executive officer of Evermore Global Advisors, based out in lovely Summit, New Jersey, here with us in New York City today. So, uh, David, I got to say, when you bring up the idea of investing in Europe, a lot of folks across a lot of asset classes would say, no, thank you. I'm good. I'm going to wait for a little while. But you think it's the perfect time. Why? Well, you know, look, the, this perspective that you just laid out, that's how people have been for years now about Europe. But the reality is that while the macro environment historically has been kind of not so good for Europe, if you go past those headlines and look at what the companies are doing, they're doing all the right things. There, so you have a low growth environment. So what's happening now? You have massive M&A activity because the companies are buying growth. They're buying their competitors. They're buying 
uh, other businesses to add on services. You have more money raised by private equity groups to focus on Europe than ever before. Mm-hmm. You have shareholder activism actually having success in Europe. It wasn't in the past. You have cost cutting happening where it's getting to the bottom line. So shareholders are benefiting, yet the headlines remain bad. People are focused on Brexit and the votes and tariffs and everything else, but the companies are doing it. And then if you add to that, the macro is finally coming our way. Right. That will underpin a lot of opportunities. And I feel like I have the whole place to myself because so many investors just say, no, thank you. Yep. I'll stick it out here in the U.S. And the fact is I've been investing in Europe for about 30 years now. And I think this is the best I've seen because this confluence of so many of these factors that I've touched on, uh, it's, it's really here. Over those 30 years, I've been talking about one-offs. This is happening, shareholder activism or that. Right. Here, it's all happening. It's all coming together. And investors have the same excuses for why they don't want to look there. And we're seeing in so many situations, we have multinational businesses that are based in Europe. And they're getting the same brushstroke of a Europe-only company. Therein lies opportunity. But that's your point. It's not by Europe. It's by individual companies. Exactly. Picking out the names. So you mentioned, um, was it Vivendi? Or tell me a little bit about, you like Vivendi. Yeah. So Content, content, content. Yeah. So exactly. So Vivendi owns Universal Music. Right. The biggest music company in the world. They are in the process of selling up to 10% initially to Tencent Mm -hmm. from China. That's right. Who can eventually go to 20 but then Vivendi has Canal Plus, a big uh, media company, pay yeah. TV business. They produce mm-hmm. uh, shows. Uh, they have a video game business and mobile gaming businesses. They have a whole host of different assets. They own the control of the largest phone company in Italy called Telecom Italia. They own 25% of it. They control uh, Berlusconi's media company. They don't control it. They have a 30% stake in that business. So this is a far-reaching media conglomerate. And most investors just say, ah, it's a mishmash of different assets. Mm-hmm. But we think that the universal music business is worth as much as basically just about the whole market cap. And you're getting all these other assets for free. And the guys in charge are restructuring. They're selling assets. They're buying back other assets. They're buying back stock. They're refocusing the businesses. And that is one of the keys in Europe is this refocusing. So you have conglomerates breaking up and shedding non-core businesses. Somebody else buys it. And so you have deconglomerating going on. At the same time, you have... Reconglomerating. I don't know if either of those are real words, but the reconglomerating. We get, we get what you mean. You know, it's like, so in certain verticals, they so a, a conglomerate breaks up. They keep the businesses they're right, number one it. or two in, but the thing that they're number four and they dump. Yeah. The guy who's number five buys the number four one. He becomes bigger. And the but whole it's cycle more tight. starts over again. Yeah. And it's much tighter. So got to ask you, only about 30 seconds left, but how does Brexit play into all this? This is a big week in the UK, a, a referendum-ish to some extent. It's totally. not an actual referendum but, on Brexit, but a referendum on the yes, government in a lot of ways. So we assume that um, Boris Johnson's going to win. I don't think it's a surprise to anybody, that perspective. But the fact is, at my firm, we haven't had a stock in the UK for six years now Whoa. because it's always been expensive. We recently bought one. It was a gaming business. Or it is a gaming business. So uh, my point is the whole Brexit fear creates cheaper opportunities. And right. so bad headlines, stress, distress, negative perspective, that creates bargains. And then we go in there and we do our homework. So now I think we'll have more in the UK precisely because of the stress. So once it gets resolved, 
Yeah. Yeah. That there's that that is defined in terms of the risk or, or it's taken out of the yeah, equation. Yeah, but and the headlines work. scare people away. All right. Got to leave it there. Thank you so hmm. much. Fun to catch, catch up with you. David Marcus, co-founder, chief executive officer at Evermore Global Advisors, based in Summit, New Jersey, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio on this Tuesday. So we are going to talk a little bit about digital. Actually, the big giant digital player. I'm talking about Amazon because just out this week, there's a new book that basically says um, many things, but it also says Amazon success achievable by anyone. Um, we'll tell you how that can be done. Ram Sharan is global advisor, author of the Amazon management system, the ultimate digital business engine that creates extraordinary value for both customers and shareholders. He's based in Dallas in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Welcome. Nice to have you here. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. Well, tell me how anyone can kind of build a company like you Amazon. You see, the most fundamental thing about business is customer. I learned in my shoe shop to be a customer-oriented. Amazon is the quintessential customer company. You know what they want. You figure out what they could want. You innovate what they will want. And you service them faster, better, and cheaper. People don't remember Amazon started with nothing. And by the third year, they begin to finance their own growth with their own cash surplus. So they had nothing in terms of money. So if you focus on the customer, work backwards from there, see what your business model is, you can succeed. We now have companies like Stitch. It's a new company, new age company, servicing same principle, your service to the customer. And they are obsessed about it. They build digitization on it. Today, you do digitization much more inexpensively mm-hmm, right. than they had to do it. So you can do that. Business is first right servicing the customer. And when you talk about sort of building the team, because that's something else that you talk about in your in your book a lot, this sort of raising the bar on the talent pool. Yes. Very important. But one of the things that it feels like from the outside that leads to is sometimes a pretty tough culture. Yeah. The culture that encourages internal competition is tough. Raising the bar is doubling, tripling mental capacity. In the age of digitization, artificial intelligence, software area, It is the job of the brain. Brain has unlimited capacity. And so therefore, I have now been into Chinese big companies inside what Amazon has and creating new artificial intelligence, deep learning is far, far ahead. So you got to continually upgrade because the acceleration of change is very high. So how do you factor in, Ram? i got to break in because I'm just thinking our listeners are thinking, well, wait a minute. Isn't Amazon one of those big social media companies that is on the radar of lawmakers and yeah. regulators? Yes. Because, yeah, they're big, and yeah, they've made some things easier, and yeah, they've thought about their customer, but they've also, in many ways, invaded our privacy, I think many people would make that argument. So how do you factor that in as, you know, as saying they're yes. a very successful company and yet there are a lot yeah. of questions out there? It, it is a very important question. Anybody who can become very big and in their case, they are not a conglomerate. It is done organically. It is done on the roots of data, digitization, 
that same platform, you can do multiple businesses. So as you grow faster, you do influence the society. And in doing that, it is legitimate for people to look at it. Are they in any way preventing competition? So that's why these investigations are coming. It's going to happen to all the four. Do you think they are because they've gotten so big or no? No. You've got to see. The, I, I used to teach antitrust law at Harvard Business School. And you have to show the intent and action to prevent competition. If they have done so, it will come out. If they have not done so, it will not happen. IBM was subjected to that. They were never broken up. So basically, I mean, the question is, is the consumer being hurt? Consumer is going to be playing the game in the sense that consumer is benefiting. The anti-competition is when you use your power mm-hmm. to not let others compete by using practices, predatory, or in some ways playing the game where it is downright illegal. Right. So when you think about sort of what can be learned and actually applied yes. you know, to a smaller company that doesn't have this sort of yes. scale, uh, yeah. what, what should people be thinking about? Yeah, I have a number of companies that I'm doing it now in Japan, in China, in Brazil, and in India. Small companies, you start with a very simple way that you must be servicing the customer. So I call that front end. So front end, we can now get small vendors to come and get your data and connect to your product development. So many of these vendors, you can do a lot of things with half million dollars. So I have five, six companies like this, Mm -hmm. and we say fix the front end first. When Walmart, Doug McMillan came in, he bought $3.2 billion company. Right. He's fixing the front end. Brian Cornell came in, Target, fixing the front end. You know what's fascinating to hear you this, though? And I was thinking about when you were speaking earlier. I mean, serving the customer, right? That I feel like you'd go to business school or something that's kind of 101, right? But it's interesting that it's gotten lost. Uh, I feel like over the years. Yeah, I think I want you to know I taught at Harvard Business School, Northwestern Business School, Business Unit, Business University, INSEAD in France, Wharton in here. There's very little that is taught about the customers in the MBA program. But isn't that shocking? Because they're teaching finance, numbers. You go to consulting, you go to programming. They never visited. So I had a great company in Uniqlo in Japan. First thing I did, requested the CEO to pick 35 key people, middle generator, and they go for a week to learn about the customer and come back and give us the report. Next week, go and tell us about the competition, tell us the report, and see customers going to non-apparel stores. Their mindset began to change. So is that what happened to American retail? In that many cases, see, I have worked with the senior most guys in the largest retail companies, except for people like Indra Nui in Pepsi. She goes to stores every week. A.G. Leffley went to the stores every week. But people P&G, in, right, at Procter & Gamble? Yeah, Sears. I don't think those guys left the top tower for right. a long time. Right. They were in, in Manhattan. Uh, just 30 seconds, what's a forever day one culture? The culture there is that every day is a new way. And you're going to look at new things. And you will be willing to cannibalize the old things. 
And therefore, you must be fresh because the world is changing very fast. All right, Ram Sharan, what a treat to get some time with you, author, global advisor to so many brand name companies across the world. I feel like we barely scratched the surface. His new book, The Amazon Management System, the ultimate digital business engine that creates extraordinary value for both customers and shareholders here with us. Come in back because we'd love to talk more about some of the different companies you've worked in because there's so much change going on in various industries. So what's all of us? All right, I have to say, this is one of the must-reads, absolutely, in this week's edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Carol, and I'll just read you the headline, Mistrust and the Hunt for Spies Among Chinese Americans. It's a sort of story that you start reading, you think, oh, well, I can't be that bad. And then you go, wait, what? Really bad, right? So let's get into it. Uh, This story in the politics section of the magazine, which will be on newsstands on Thursday. Uh, It's on the Bloomberg, and it's also at Bloomberg.com. Bloomberg News Projects and Investigations reporter Peter Waldman joining us uh, on the phone from our 960 studio in San Francisco. Also with us, Jill Weber, Bloomberg Businessweek editor in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio in New York. Um, Jill, I'm curious, when this story first came to you, I mean, it had to jump out like, yeah, we got to do this. Well, it's not the first time Peter's written about this topic. You know, this is actually almost, I think, the third installment this year that he's done on it. So we've been encouraging him and, uh, you know, we will continue to encourage him to keep going uh, because I think that this topic is one that we can't really talk about enough right now. the, it's the idea of the red scare of the you know every every Chinese American in the country whether they're in uh, working for the government as this story is about or in a cover story that we did earlier in the year is specifically about medical research um, that that they're somehow uh, subject to uh, more uh, like a different standard than the rest of America right. right. Peter, come on, come talk a little bit more about your story too, and the individual that you write about, because um, it really does revolve around his specific uh, case, but it certainly speaks to a broader problem that's going on. Sure, his name is Wei Su, and he is a uh, an engineer in Maryland, and was working for one of the really high tech weapons labs for the U.S. Army. Uh, it's a communication lab that specializes in eavesdropping and hacking and things like that. And he'd been there for more than two decades, won a ton of awards, well known for a special piece of software he wrote that the NSA uses. Uh, And come along around 2011, uh, he sees a visitor come to his hotel in Auckland, New Zealand, um, asking uh, him if he had ever supplied any information to China. And the visitor identifies himself as a Taiwanese intelligence agent. And uh, Wei Su reports it to his American security people. And when he gets back, um, the FBI and the military intelligence from the Army are all over him for 20-plus months of interrogations and threats and telling him, you must have done something wrong, confess, confess, confess. He says, absolutely not. And so I I have to ask you, Peter, because as Joel pointed out, this is a story, it's effectively a series of stories that that you've been working on. What has surprised you? You know this world so well. The the twists and turns, I have to think, might have caught even you off guard here. Uh, They do, because one sees um, the FBI and other American security agencies Um, behaving largely responsibly uh, or trying to whenever they can. They seem to have a thing right now, a bee in their bonnet, so to speak, about Chinese Americans. Uh, It's obviously from the many 
situations of suspected espionage, intellectual property theft, those kinds of things um, that they're seeing or hearing or investigating, uh, although there have been relatively few of those that have actually come out, and, and the ones that in several of those that have have actually ultimately been dismissed. So um, one fears, I think the, 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 the high-level fear is a situation of racial profiling where the distrust of China um, sort of exacerbated in this trade war environment, but the overall distrust and rivalry is leading to a distrust of Chinese Americans, and of course that raises all kinds of civil liberties concerns. Some of those uh, aren't, this isn't the first time that this has come up, right? And like one of those sources that you talked to is a f- former FBI person who says, look, like we, we've actually, we've, we, the way we've gone about talking to this community is even uh, the, the wrong way. We can't put, you know, 1.5 billion people in the same bucket. What, what is the, the change within law enforcement and that evolution? What, what, have, what have we gathered from how these uh, tactics have, are, are continuing to evolve? Yeah, that's a really good question because it relates to 9-11 and the aftermath and uh, a person named Robert Mueller. Mm-hmm. Um, he was the director of the FBI after 9-11, and he helped um, essentially refocus the bureau at the FBI from... Uh, law enforcement and traditional sorts of, you know, gangland activities and all kinds of other things, interstate fraud and whatnot, to um, essentially a counterintelligence agency that was, as we all know, for a decade at least, intensively focused on Muslims in the United States and in gaining informants in mosques and keeping an eye out for potential terrorism. At the same time, though, they introduced a lot of programs and training materials and literally sort of ethnic mapping uh, programs that identified where the groups live in the United States by census data uh, to figure out what, what are the neighborhoods and ethnic communities that need to be watched for terrorists and spies. And so now we have this rivalry with China and it's all kind of erupted and and the focus and the thinking and the behavior there tends to sort of move in this direction of surveying an entire community and looking at a broad group. Which is worrisome. Like you think about how things have changed dramatically. Um, Peter, thank you so much. Peter Wallman, Projects and Investigations reporter at Bloomberg News from our 960 studio in San Francisco. Check out his story, as I mentioned, uh, in the magazine this week and online and, of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Joe Weber, thank you as well. Editor of Bloomberg Business Week in our interactive broker studio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, it is time for the drive to the close. Back with us is Tom Plum, President and Chief Investment Officer at Plum Funds, based in Madison, Wisconsin, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, New York. I know I've said this before. 
But it's worth noting, again, the Plum Balance Fund in the 99th percentile for the past five years, meaning it beats just about all of the other funds in this category, returning on average annually nearly 9%. This year alone, the fund is up more than 21%. Tom, good to have you here with us. Thanks, Carol. I, you know, I was saying to you, you know, I always love when I can look at a, a fund manager's um, track record, and you've done really, really well and consistently. I am curious about the mix right now because I feel like fixed income, everybody is kind of, oh, woe is me kind of thing. Um, talk to us about the mix right now. What's the balanced mix between equities and fixed income? We're about 65% stocks and uh, about 35% in fixed income. Pretty normal? Our, is that pretty normal for it's, you guys? It's pretty much our neutral area. Okay. Uh, uh, but our fixed income, remember, is meant to focus on pre- preservation of principal and then capturing some yield. And so it's corporate, right? Primarily corporate bonds. Um, a lot of... Uh, v- bonds that were issued prior to the financial crisis by banks that had unique characteristics uh, in that they would pay uh, LIBOR plus three and a half percent, but because they're grandfathered by Basel, they end up being considered for the capital, so they don't get called even though all their new cost of capital would be so much less. And so how do you generally feel about this market as we get into the end of the year, especially as we look back to a year ago when we were on the verge of yeah. a pretty rough last couple of weeks of the year. It was a, it was brutal last year. And, you know, I, I, I guess I think that we're still in a very positive secular trend here, uh, the, that the market is still potentially has its ability to go up. There's some good investments at reasonable prices. The interest rates, even though we bounce around quite a bit, they're so low that they uh, have basically low or no cost of funds for a lot of things. Right. And uh, I also think that, you know, a lot of people are concerned about the low capital expenditures that this economy, that the businesses have had. But I think that they get mistaken for the fact that this isn't your father's economy anymore that capital investment was meant to improve your flexibility, add to capability, and add the efficiencies. And right now, that's software. Software as a service. Companies, instead of... It's not buying and uh, making a big plant, right? Or something like that. Instead of building a plant, buying a lot of computers and putting in your computer data center, you're subscribing to the cloud, for example. Uh, You're subscribing to an operating system that's going to increase your efficiencies, your cash turn. So your point is, it's not that they're not spending, it just isn't costing like it used to, right? So the numbers don't seem as impressive? They don't seem as impressive because it's not a capital expenditure. I'm paying a monthly premium for a lot of these services that in the old days, you know, when you think about working for a corporation and they'd have a big debate, should we spend the money to go to Windows 7 from Windows 5 or Windows 10? Should we wait until we see it's proven before we buy it? Well, now everything is a subscription model with automatic updates. So that's why you like Microsoft? That's why we like Microsoft. The company has had an incredible transition in the last 20 years from selling a system on a one-off basis basis and then looking to sell the next one to selling it as a subscription and now 50% of the revenues is cloud amazing yeah it's amazing so recurring fees they know they're going to keep coming in right for the most part right and uh, capital light 
You know, when you think about the old capital investment, you used to build a plant, you had to borrow money, you had right. a cost of capital. Now, what does it cost for them to turn one more mm-hmm. Windows online subscription right. turn on? And so how does that play through? Are there other names sort of in the cloud space that you like as well? A lot of them that either use the cloud or even, you know, obviously the two that are the leaders in providing those services mm-hmm. are Amazon and Microsoft. Right. But but you look at how everyone is using it and using it for their subscription, uh, building their software as a service model. Uh, as they go to the cloud, it just increases the ability for them to offer all the redundancies, all the systems. And if anyone here in the audience has ever gone through system conversions for main operating systems, you know it's hell. Uh-huh. So when you have the ability to just have moderately, continuously updated software, it's it's a godsend. Talk to us about Tyler Technologies. It's almost an $11 billion market cap company. It's based in Dallas, Texas. It's not a household name. It's up more than 51% so far this year. Ticker's T-Y-L. Yeah, right. So tell us about this company. So uh, when you think about, again, software as a capital investment, when you look at municipalities, there's so many different ones in the United States, and each one of them may have their own operating system. Uh, There's things like the 9-11 system. There's the court system. There's how they collect their real estate taxes. This company is offering these different suites of services to these municipalities. Much of it now is a subscription based, so it's got the recurring revenue stream and all the things we talked about. And who's their competition? Over half the time that they're put into a new system, they're either replacing something that was developed internally or provided by a company that is no longer in existence. They say that a number of the systems are old IBM DOS systems, for example. That's pretty cool. I was just looking at some of their revenue growth number, expected to be up about 19%. I think this is quarter to quarter here, but it's pretty impressive. Right. We expect double-digit revenue growth going on for a number of years. Yeah. Uh, Only about 40 seconds left. Anything you're selling or avoiding at this point? Well, um, we we are the type of company that does avoid this bet on commodities, Mm -hmm. commodity pricing. We know that uh, if you guess right at the right time, you can make a ton of money. But to us, it's we'd rather have a business model that has developed recurring revenue stream in a growth industry with a secular tailwind. Just quickly, Visa, MasterCard, uh, Discover, American Express. I mean, this is you guys are all in on this because you don't care whether it's who's doing it. I mean, these are the guys behind the scenes doing all the processing, right? Just got about 40 seconds. Right, and that's where we think that you'll continue to grow at multiples of the GDP growth around the world in these industries. Uh, They already are growing that fast with the consumer-to-business models, Right. but the business-to-business models that they're developing services for are just growing exponentially. Pretty cool stuff. Tom, thank you, thank you. Really appreciate it. Love to see you. Tom Plum, President and Chief Investment Officer at Plum Funds, as we said, based in Madison, Wisconsin, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. His balance fund, as I mentioned, uh, beating pretty much all of its peers uh, regularly over the past five years. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.